Well, I invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 38. And we'll be looking at uh, the first part of God's response to Job. So this is a a very dramatic uh, change in the storyline because up until this point, uh, God has remained silent. And uh, so we're going to listen to God speak to Job in this uh, in this section. So we'll be looking at uh, Job chapter 38 and uh, 39 and the first part of chapter 40 uh, this morning. Uh, as you turn there, remember that through the book of Job, one of Job's longing, his heart longing, was an opportunity to uh, meet with God, have an audience with God, so he could present his case before God. And Job was confident that if he could do that, if he could ever get a meeting with God, that God would surely acquit him, pronounce him innocent and not guilty of all of the sins that his friends were accusing him of because of the prevailing philosophy that basically God judges evil people. Job, you're being judged. You must be evil. You must be guilty of many horrendous sins. So Job Job wanted an audience with God. And this is kind of the moral of the story is be careful what you wish for. Because God is going to now appear to to Job and speak to him. And it will be quite different than what he anticipated. We know God is the great physician He alone is the ultimate healer of our bodies and our souls. And although human doctors, thank God for human doctors, but sometimes they can make false diagnosis of our condition. But God never does because He knows everything. He knows us from the inside out perfectly. So when He prescribes medicine for our soul, it's exactly what we need. And so we thank God for all who care for us, but uh, we thank God that He's ultimately our healer. So God treats us in the way that He knows is best. And God knows Job. Job is a godly man. We know that from chapter 1 and 2. But Job still needs some sanctifying work done on his heart. And God in love and faithfulness to His devoted servant now takes out His scalpel to perform a much needed heart surgery. And we can thank God that He is the divine cardiologist. He knows the condition of our hearts. He knows what we need to deal with inner problems and concerns and hardenings that take place. And this is what the Lord knows about Job. And I say all of that to kind of preface what we're going to hear him say to Job in just a few minutes. As we look at this passage, Job chapter 38, I want to remind you that at the end of Elihu's speech that we saw last week, that in effect, Elihu was uh, setting forth the greatness of God 
And in doing that, he described how God was sovereign over the storms. Uh, so that God was in control of the storms that occur on earth. He guides them. He directs them. He controls them to accomplish His purpose. If you look at chapter 36, verse 32, we find that it says that He covers His hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. So that God even controls every lightning strike to hit exactly the mark that He has determined for that. He's sovereign over the storm. And it's interesting, in chapter 36, Elihu is just setting that out, generally speaking, God is sovereign over the storm. And then in chapter 37, it would appear that a literal storm now begins to come into the area where Job and his three friends and Elihu are. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. At this also my heart trembles, Elihu says, and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out of his mouth. It would appear that as Elihu is explaining God's glory and greatness over the storm, that a literal storm now begins to arise and is coming towards them. We know that God uses storms for correction and for loving kindness. We saw that in chapter 37. And as this literal storm is now approaching, out of the whirlwind, God now begins to speak to Job. So you really can't ask for a more dramatic setting to the way God is now going to speak to Job. So look at chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So this storm that Elihu had been describing in general, that God is sovereign over the storm, He controls it, He directs it, and now a literal storm was developing and coming upon them, and now it's right there where they're at. And apparently a tornado or a whirlwind, whatever that refers to, we think in Oklahoma of of a tornado, has appeared and dropped down out of the sky and it has approached them and now apparently it has stopped and God is going to speak out of the whirlwind, out of the tornado. Now that is, again, that, that, would, uh, that would be a terrifying thing in and of itself. Uh, God speaks from the whirlwind. And again, This is uh, the way God sometimes prefers to set the stage for Him to speak in order to get the people's attention. Remember all the way back in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, when the whole nation of Israel, several million people, had gathered in the plain right before Mount Sinai, that we read that the Lord God descended upon the mountain in fire and smoke. That smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. There was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud and the whole mountain of Sinai began to quake violently. And then out came the sound of a trumpet that grew louder and louder. And there was a warning from God that whoever touches the mountain shall surely die. 
And this was barely the, the, the mere stage. The pulpit, Mount Sinai had become God's pulpit from which He would preach to the people the Ten Commandments. And sometimes God speaks out of the storm to get our attention. Now John Calvin, I think very perceptively says that God doesn't audibly speak out of whirlwinds today, but He does figuratively. He will send a figurative whirlwind into our life. As an analogy of speech, He'll send a storm into our life to get our attention. Calvin says that God would would rather have us listen to His Word, but when we don't, God will use trials and storms of life to get our attention. Often we don't respond to His softer means of grace. So God speaks to us through a troubled conscience after we have violated His moral laws. Or He speaks to us through afflictions of illness or other experiences of hardships, Calvin writes. God uses these means to get our attention and to help us focus on our own walk with the Lord, on our own obedience before God, on our, on our own willingness to listen to His Word. And so the Lord is no doubt coming to Job because He wants His attention. He comes in a stor- storm winds, a whirlwind, a violent storm. And Job could probably only remember back in chapter 1 the destruction that the storm and the winds had already brought into his life. And so now here comes another storm. But instead of destruction will come God's mercy and God's Word to bring healing to Job's heart. C.S. Lewis in his book on the problem of pain said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so God will ordain the storms of life, the pains of life, the sufferings of life, and use them as a megaphone to get our attention when He has not had our attention. I just want to remind you uh, again what I think the reasons are for why Job suffers in the book. Just uh, again to set the frame to understand the words of God beginning in chapter 38. Why did Job suffer in the book of Job? Well, we know at the outset the very first reason is given to us in chapter 1 and 2 because God wants to prove Job's faith to Satan. Satan thought that Job had a mercenary faith that he only worshipped God because God blessed him. So he basically just worshipped the blessings of God. But take away the blessings and God would curse you to your face. And so the first reason for Job's sufferings is to prove to Satan that Job's faith was real. It was genuine. So that's the first reason. The second reason, however, has gradually unfolded in the book, and that is God wants to improve Job's faith by exposing latent sin that had deep down in his heart, 
that had only surfaced during his prolonged suffering. This is last week the illustration of the vipers hidden in the bundle of sticks that Paul picked up this bundle of sticks and it was when it was thrown on the fire that the viper came out and lashed upon his hand. And some of our sins are like those vipers that are down in there and for the most part we keep them suppressed and and they don't don't erupt. But you, you give us a prolonged period of trial or suffering or pain and suddenly those inner snakes, those vipers can come out to the surface and create their damage in our life. And I think God knows Job's heart. He knows that deep down inside there are issues of pride. And so part of the suffering is of this godly righteous man. No doubt, he's a godly righteous man. But part of the suffering is to test him so that the prolonged misery that he's in, the intensity of the pain that he's experiencing would reveal this, this sin down in his heart that now begins to bubble up and, and erupt out of his heart. And that sin is pride. We see it beginning to crop up through the book of Job. For example, just to remind you, back in Job chapter 9, verse 17, Job said, He bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. God is not right in what He's done to me. God is unjust in the way He has treated me. We see in later on in verse 22, He says, it is all one. Therefore, I say He destroys the guiltless and the wicked. He says, it doesn't matter if I've lived a righteous life. God treats us all the same. He judges and destroys the wicked, but He also does that to the righteous man as well. God is not just according to their view of the way God should treat a righteous man. He shouldn't judge him like Job is being judged. In chapter 10, verse 7, Job says, according to your own knowledge, speaking to God, I am indeed not guilty, and yet there's no deliverance from your hand. You see that pride, that that revolt against God. He's accusing God, saying, look, you know that I am innocent. And you've done nothing to deliver me from these afflictions. In chapter 19, verse 6, Job says, Know then that God has wronged me and closed His net around me. I mean, you just see again the the pride, the, the arrogance coming out of Job's heart. Now, Job is a godly, righteous man. You don't see any of that earlier in his life. But God ordained the suffering, ordained the afflictions in part to give an opportunity for this inner sin to to burst out in all of its ugliness. In Job chapter 33, verse 9, he says, Job says, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent and there's no guilt in me. But behold, he invents pretexts against me. Speaking of God, he counts me as his enemy. And in all of this, Job is just saying, it's not fair. It's not right. God, you've wronged me. You've been unjust to me. You've mistreated me. And in all of this is just an eruption of his proud spirit and heart. This is what God knows is down in there. 
And this is why in the afflictions that God has ordained, the second reason is to let Job see what's down in his heart. Which is general morality had covered over and glossed over for much of his life, but now that the suffering was so intense and so prolonged, this whole part of his heart now began to, to, to expose itself. But this is part of God's goodness to Job because God's going to deal with that. You see, that is a problem really that we all have because I believe pride is the taproot of our sin nature. It's the taproot because in so many ways I think our depraved nature has at its very core the sin of pride. And so many of our problems stem from our pride. Anger, impatience, depression, anxiety. Oftentimes, there can be other factors that that are involved in this. But I think pride is, is right there. Why do we get angry? Because someone's doing what I don't like. What I don't want them to do. So I get angry. It's rooted in my pride. Why do we become impatient? Because they're not doing it when I want them to do it. And that's why we can become impatient at a red light. And it turns green. And the guy in front of me is on his cell phone. And he's not moving. And we can become impatient. Because he's not moving because I want him to move. It's my pride wanting to exalt myself and rule my life and govern my circumstances. And when anybody messes with it, then it creates these kinds of responses. How about depression? We get depressed because things aren't working out the way I want them to work out. I'm not getting what I deserve, what I'm entitled to, what I want. I'm not getting the love, the respect, the happiness. I'm not getting my needs met. And so we get depressed and we get discouraged because my pride has been offended. I'm not getting what I I desire. Same thing with anxiety. Things may not work out the way I want them to. So I become fearful. I become anxious. I begin to worry because I want things to happen a certain way and I'm fearful it may not happen that way and so I become worried and anxious. Pride is at the core of a lot of these issues. And God knows that that's true in Job's heart. Godly man, righteous man. But like all of us, we wrestle with pride. Pride is essentially the exaltation of self over God. I want it my way. I think Frank Sinatra sang a song about that. But pride is inherently self-centered, not God-centered. It's not what does God want. It's what does I, what do I want? See, that becomes the controlling motivation in my life. So pride thinks the world should revolve around me, around my desires, my wants, my expectations. And when it doesn't, then I get depressed, angry, impatient, or worried, or whatever it may be, because I want to be God. I want things to work the way I want them to work. Instead of letting God be God, I want His throne. 
And that's the essence of the heart of pride. Job's pride had caused him to consider that and accuse God of being unjust, unfair, mistreating him. And in essence, the problem with a proud heart is that we just have a low view of God. The psalmist had to rebuke Israel with their sin with these words. God is speaking and He says, you thought that I was just like you. The proud heart will shrink God down as it exalts itself in God's place. That's the heart of pride. God knows that's in Job's heart. God sees it. He knows it's there. He has sent these afflictions in part to let Job realize it's there. That it would come up and in his response to all of God's providence and all these sufferings, it exposed Job's heart as being one full of pride. It developed over the longevity of these sufferings. So Job's problem being his pride was really greater than his boils. His disease of pride is a far worse disease than the physical calamities he's faced from Satan. And God in His love for Job, in His loving kindness for Job, knows that and wants to, wants to deal with it. Job was blind to his pride as we often are to our pride. We often don't see it because pride is quite devious and deceptive. It's always trying to convince us that we are right and everyone else is wrong. Pride refuses to be corrected. It's full of self-righteousness. It makes Pharisees out of all of us. The best of Christians at times. Pride produces a judgmental spirit because I'm right. I have the truth. You don't. You're in sin. It's that kind of Phariseeism that can come into our hearts. And not only are we blind to it a lot of times, pride is just totally destructive as it continues to live on in our lives. Pride is like a poison for the soul. Pride casts Lucifer out of heaven. Pride cast Adam and Eve out of the garden as Satan tempted them that you'll be like God. Pride caused Nebuchadnezzar to go from being a king to a cow when in pride he said, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Said Nebuchadnezzar. And God turned the king into a cow, a bovine, to eat grass. Pride is destructive. Pride can destroy a life. It can tear apart a marriage. It can ruin a family. It can drive a business to bankruptcy and cause a nation to stumble when it gives its way into pride. But because God loves Job, He's about to shower His loving kindness upon this godly man who had fallen into a very serious sin. And, it, and through His mercies, He's going to bring about a healing for Job. 
He's going to do surgery on his heart. He's going to deal with that sin of pride that has grown and surfaced through his afflictions. So what do you think the cure is? Well, Job's cure for this newfound sin in his heart that has manifested itself through his prolonged suffering, his cure is to see the incomprehensible incomprehensible greatness and majesty of God. What Job needs to see is the greatness and the glory and majesty of God that would humble Himself as He sees how incredibly great and glorious God is. That's the need for any proud heart. is to get your eyes off yourself and get them on the greatness of God. And that will enable you to trust God. To wait upon God. Because you don't question His wisdom anymore. You don't question His authority or His sovereignty anymore. Because God is so great. And we are so small that we just humbly bow before Him and receive from Him what His providence has brought into our life. With with peace and joy. That's what Job needs. He needs a revival in his image of God. And so we see in Job chapter 38, beginning in verse 2, that God begins by rebuking Job for his pride. Now notice this. Look at verse 2. God says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. And you can just see a measure of mockery in here. That God is now speaking directly to Job out of the whirlwind, this incredibly dramatic setting, just like kind of like Mount Sinai. God is now speaking to Job about his deficient low view of God that has given room for his pride to exalt itself in all the complaining, grumbling spirit that we have seen through the book. So God now challenges Job, gird up your loins like a man. Prepare yourself. You want to debate me? You want to go to court with me? Go ahead, gather all your evidence, get all your testimonies together, put all your best arguments together, and come and and stand, and I will ask, and you then teach me, God said. You instruct me, Job. And so already he's just he's just beginning to squash that proud spirit in Job. God will ask questions. And he's demanding that Job give an answer. And of course, these questions are going to come upon Job like rapid fire machine gun bullets. He can't answer a single one of the questions that God will ask him. But part of what God is doing is showing to Job that his view of God has shrunk down too low. He needs to to get a biblical view of the majesty, the greatness of God. And in light of who we are, in light of who God is, then rethink the way you've been speaking. 
You've been speaking about me like with words without knowledge. You have darkened counsel, Job. You thought you had light, but there is a lot of darkness within you. So the speech that we'll focus on quickly in in, uh, chapter 38 and 39, God is going to communicate to Job His power, His wisdom over the creation of the earth, the heavens, and the animal kingdom. It's interesting. So let's kind of quickly launch into this. So notice He says in verse 4, He begins to ask questions of Job where he was when God created the heavens or the earth. He says in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So it's kind of like, Job, where were you on day one of creation? I mean, man wasn't even created till day six. Where were you when I laid the foundation? You know, you tell me. You instruct me, Job. And you can see where God is just pounding down on this pride, this arrogance of Job. He says in verse 5, Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so obviously Job has no answer for that. And then in verse 8, God begins to ask him about the sea. Verse 8, Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling bands. Where were you? Did you help me? Did you contribute? Did you add anything to it, Job? Well, of course not. And then he speaks of the mysteries of light and darkness. Look at verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Job, do you cause the sunrise in the morning? Do you do that? I do. He goes on, drop down to verse 16. He says, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Of course, he doesn't. He's never been there. He doesn't know. He's just a puny, finite man. But he's been accusing Almighty God of injustice. And so God continues His reprimand. This bombardment of questions drop down to verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Which I have reserved in the time of distress for the day of war and battle. Where is the way that the light is divided? or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? And again, all these questions only God can answer. Only God has done it. Only God knows how to do it. And by laying all this out to Job, he's just continuing to 
to give a revival of the, what, what Job needs both, most in his heart is to subdue the pride and to see the glory of God. And so that's, what, that's the direction God is moving in. Look at verse 31 when it comes to the stars and lightning and clouds. Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? That's a star constellation. Or loose the cords of Orion? One of the constellations I love to look at on, uh, uh, in the sky at night is Orion the Hunter. That's the constellation that he's referring to. Verse 32, can you lead forth a constellation in its season? Can you guide the bear with her satellites? Kind of like Job, do you cause the stars to move across the sky at night? Do you do that, Job? I do. And you're challenging me? What a foolish creature. The bear is, we, we know it as Ursa Major or the Big Dipper. And God is bringing that into His argument. In verse 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Do you do all that, Job? Can you explain that to me? I do it. I know it. And then in the next chapter, verse 39, uh, God now begins to focus on the animal kingdom. And He actually... Uh, starts at the end of chapter 38, referring to lions and ravens. And then uh, he drops down to chapter 39 and speaks about wild goats. Look at verse 1. Do you know that chapter 39, verse 1, do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving, calving of the deer? These are all wild animals. Men aren't, don't have the privy of being able to go out and watch these wild animals give birth. They do it in secret. They do it in hiding. That, that's not something that they can observe. And, and God is just saying, do you, do you see it? Again, the implication, I do. I cause it. You don't know anything about it. And yet you accuse me of wrong. Drop down to verse 9. He, he deals with the wild donkey. In verse 9, He deals with the wild ox. Will the wild ox consent to serve you or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes or will you harrow the valleys after you? And again, all these are wild animals that, that they have no control of. Again, showing you have no power over even the smallest of my creatures. In verses 13 through 18, it's interesting. I won't read it, but God brings forth the ostrich by just saying how foolish they are. They're foolish parents. They, uh, they don't care for their eggs like they should, and yet they can outrun a horse. You make animals like that, Job? Do you control them? Do you give some wisdom and withhold wisdom from others? Do you make them fast? Do you make them slow? I do. And then drop down to verse 26. We're still in chapter 39. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? 
On the cliffs He dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there He spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. Is it by your understanding, Job, your wisdom, your knowledge, that you give the eagle the eyesight, the ability to soar, to make his nest so high up on the mountainside? Do you do all that? And again, through all these questions, you can see Job's pride just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. See, his God was too small. And so what God is doing is is expanding his mind to see the glory and the greatness of God. The point of all of this is that God in effect is saying to Job, Job, since you did not participate in the creation of the world, you do not govern the world. You don't understand the world that I have made, including the animal kingdom and the stars and how it all works together then how can you hope to understand my ways in dealing with man? You don't understand anything, Job. And yet you're accusing me of not being wise. You're accusing me of being unjust in the way I've treated you. So in effect, he's saying that if you can't even understand my wisdom in ruling the lesser creatures of my world, how can you comprehend my wisdom in ruling the greater creatures, i.e. man, who is the, the high point of God's creation, made in His image? How can you understand any of that? So why are you accusing me of wrong? Why in your pride are you saying that, that I have mistreated you or I have been unjust with you? And in effect, what God is saying to Job is you have no right to question my wisdom, my goodness, or my sovereign control. I am God. You are not. Start acting and thinking. It's very similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. When he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? In other words, the lump of clay cannot say to the potter, I don't like the way you made me. You should have made my spout a little longer. You should put my handle in a different place. It's ridiculous to think that the clay could rebuke the potter. And yet, that's what Job has been doing. He's a lump of clay rebuking, accusing the potter of doing things that he does not approve of. It's pride. It's a pride issue. It's a heart issue. And God is remedying His issue by exalting His view of the greatness of God. True by this machine gun bombardment of questions, but it's all to shrink down Job's pride. So he humbles himself before the majesty and greatness of God. That's where we need to be. Stephen Charnock, again, one of the Puritans, said the counsels of a boundless being, that is God, are not to be scanned by the brain of a silly worm that hath breathed but a few minutes in the world. And so in effect, what God is doing with Job out of His great love and tenderness and care for His devoted servant who has allowed this 
this sinful attitude in his heart to come forth to accuse God of wrongdoing, that God in His love for Job has brought this suffering into his life to expose this sin so that he can repent of it and change the way he thinks about God. So in chapter 40, quickly, then the Lord said to Job, verse 1, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And so now, after all these questions have come, God now, in effect, points His finger at Job and says, you have, have accused me of being faulty in the way I've dealt with you. You have reproved me. Now you answer all these questions that I've just asked you. Of course, Job can't answer any of them. And so now, finally, we have His humble response. He says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice, I will add nothing more. So in other words, God has exposed to Job the issue that has surfaced from this long suffering that he has gone through at God's command and under God's control and providence, but it has exposed pride in Job's heart. And God has nailed him by saying, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? The Almighty who made all these things and you're accusing me of being wrong. You've reproved me. Now answer my questions. And Job, of course, you can see his... Someone popped the balloon of his pride and now it all just fizzles back down and all he can say is, I'm, I'm nothing, God. I am insignificant. I have no answer. I can make no answer. You are God. I am not. Well, what's interesting so far in this response of God is that God doesn't address the issue that Job was wanting the most. He was wanting to meet with God lay out all the evidence of his innocence, all of his righteousness, all of his good deeds, so that God would have to say, yeah, Job, you're right, you're innocent, you're not guilty, all that the guy said was wrong, and and I'll restore everything that I took away. That's not how God answered Job. It's really quite interesting. Job wants to know why he's suffering. God never tells him why. And this is a lesson that we need to learn as well. Because a lot of times when we're going through sufferings, we're going through trials, we're going through hardships, the thing we want to know is why, God? Why are You doing this in my life? Why now? Why this? And yet oftentimes, God chooses not to answer that question. He won't answer your why question oftentimes. But rather, the question He will answer is not why, But who? Who did it? It's God Almighty that did it. It's the infinite God who possesses all wisdom and all goodness and all love for you. He's the one that did it. And so He doesn't answer the question why. Why did it happen? But He'll answer the question, who did it? Look at me. 
Humble your pride, your complaining spirit, and look at my greatness, my majesty, and then let that teach you to trust me and to wait upon me. So this is the great revelation that Job needed because as a result of his long, ongoing, grieving and hurting and suffering heart, we found that he began to complain against God. He he began to grumble against God because his pride began to swell because his life was not going the way he wanted it to. And he began to accuse God of injustice. His view of God was way too low. And his view of himself was way too high. And so God in His love humbles His pride by revealing the greatness of who He is. The response that that made to Job, which is a response that should make in our hearts as well, is to realize that a God that big is a God that can be trusted explicitly. I don't understand why, but I know who's behind it. And a God who is this sovereign and this mighty and this powerful and this good and this merciful, He has a reason and I can trust Him in it and I can wait upon Him and look to Him in all things. And that's what Job is learning. God during this time will never tell him about Satan. And what he's doing for the first reason why Job is suffering. He deals with reason number two. All of this in part was designed to allow that pride to surface so God could deal with it because God knew it was there and out of His love. As the great physician, He knew what Job needed most in the midst of his suffering was not to know the answer to the question why, but to see God in all of His glorious greatness and majesty and power and sovereignty so that Job would humble himself and just trust in God. That's where God's taken him. And that's where God is taking many of us here this morning. This is what God wants of us more than anything. That when we're going through trials that have lingered on and they've not stopped, maybe they've gotten worse, or we're going through troubles or afflictions or whatever it may be, instead of accusing God and complaining against God, we need a revival of the greatness and the majesty of God so that we don't accuse God of injustice or demand God to give us answers, but we merely humbly bow before Him and say and know in our heart, My God is good. My God is great. And He knows what is best for me. I will trust Him. This is where God wants us to be. This is where God is taking Job to be. The revival is just simply knowing that our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. And what a comfort and what a peace to those in the midst of the storm of trials and circumstances to be able to know that our God is in control 
And at any moment, he can rise up in the boat and say, hush, be still to the afflictions and the storms. But if he allows them to persevere, it's because he wants us to humble our pride, to see his greatness and trust in him. And when we do that, we can find his peace and his joy, even in the midst of our trials. That's what he's teaching Job. And that's what he's teaching many of us. May God give us hearts to hear him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, that You still speak to Your people today in the midst of our storms. Not audibly, Lord, but You speak through them in many ways to show us sin within our heart. But You do it because You love us. You do it because Your plan is to mold us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And to do that, sometimes we need to see what really lies down in the, in the, in the dark spots of the bundle of sticks that we gather up in our hearts. And when the fires of afflictions and the fires of troubles come, those snakes begin to crawl out. And you show them to us because you love us. Not because you're going to judge us or condemn us. We've placed our trust in Christ alone. There is no condemnation. But you want us to be like your son. You want us to see that sin. And oftentimes it's pride that we might renounce it and humble ourselves and place our trust in you to find your peace and your joy in the midst of our troubles. Lord, we like Job often wrestle with pride. We often accuse You of wrong things. We say blasphemous things against Your greatness and Your holiness. And so Lord, teach us humility. Teach us that kindness and love. Teach us that humble heart that trusts You and acknowledges You and and looks to You and know that Your ways are always good with Your people. And help us to love You and to trust You in all things. Teach us, Lord, what You're teaching Job. And give us hearts to praise You, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.